0: Hello, and welcome to another Tag1 Team Talk, the podcast and vlog of Tag1 Consulting. Today, we're talking about how to grow, support, and fund your open source project with Dries Batart, the founder and project lead of the Drupal open source CMS and framework, which powers one out of 30 websites on the internet. Dries is also the founder of Acquia, a startup that was acquired in late 2019 by Vista Equity Partners for eight dollars. Billion. That's billion with a B. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the Acquia Enterprise digital experience platform enables you to build engaging applications on top of Drupal. So welcome Dries,
1: thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, it's great.
0: We, we wanted to have this conversation because we're really involved in a lot of open source projects. And so we wanted to talk with the founders of popular open source projects to discuss you know, how you got your project to sustainability and you know, encourage everyone out there to do more to support the open source projects that we rely on to help other founders you know, replicate your success and grow their projects uh, into you know, something bigger than they are today. Uh, as well as to help more developers that are you know, pouring their heart and soul into these projects to find ways to fund and support their work. I'm Michael Myers, the managing director at tag Consulting and joining me today to talk with Dries are Fabian Franz, our VP of technology at tag who's also the Drupal 7 framework manager and core committer, and Kevin Jans, the founder and project lead of YJS, which is an open source framework that enables you to add real-time collaboration to any application. We have so much to talk about today with Trees that we broke this down into two segments. This is part one where we're gonna be talking about growing your open source projects and contributor base and user base. Be sure to check out part two. We're gonna talk about financially supporting your open source development work. We'll put the link in the show notes. Trees, just to kick things off, I, I wanna step back and say congratulations on the 20th anniversary of Drupal. That is, an insane milestone. It's
1: pretty wild. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's basically most of my professional career at this point, you know, and that's, that's... almost half my life <laughs> that I've been working <laughs> on Drupal. Yeah, so it's been, uh, it's been a big part of my life. Obviously, you know, credit goes to all of the contributors, you know, tens of thousands of people that have contributed to Drupal and made it successful over those 20 years. But it's been a wild ride.
0: We were kids when we first met. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, we were.
0: Oh, so, you know, Drupal has done so much for, for so many people and so many organizations. And I'm really grateful uh, to be one of those individuals that have meaningfully benefited from Drupal, both personally, you know, all the amazing people and friends that I've met to professionally the last, you know, 17 years, my career and finances have been based on Drupal. So I, I really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, you know, on behalf of all those contributors, you know, for everything that you've done, you know, the the sacrifice and hard work that you put in over the last 20 years to,
1: to make this happen. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. And I feel the same way. You know, I'm very grateful for all of the people that have been involved. So it's been a team effort. So I think we are all have been helping each other throughout the year. So it's pretty cool. It's an amazing community.
0: When you first released Drupal as an open source project, what were your goals and expectations? Like in your wildest dreams, did you think, you know, you know, it would be anything like it is today? Like, what, what the hell were you <laughs> <laughs> it
1: was sort of an accident, to be honest. So I, I didn't have a master plan 20 years ago. I mean, basically I started Drupal because I wanted to build an intranet application for me and my friends. And I picked PHP and MySQL because at the time, again, 20 years ago, these were kind of the new kits on the block, you know, these were like emerging technologies that were pretty cool. And so I started Drupal because on the one hand, I had an itch to scratch, as we say in open source, I had a need for a message board. And on the other hand, I wanted to learn about uh, these new technologies. So it was really born out of my own needs and desires. And there was never like this you know, big plan, like let's power one out of 30 websites in the world. The goal was like a one website and to learn a little bit about PHP and MySQL and, and some other web technology. So that was really it. You know, I was kind of started by accident, I would say, on a, on a whim. And initially I thought maybe I would spend a couple nights or something like, you know, again, it wasn't like a big project even in terms of a personal project. It was just like, let me you know, slap some things together here and see what these things are all about. And I guess it kind of spirals out of control from there, you know, (laughs) in a good way.
0: We did a a series of podcasts celebrating, you know, the 20th anniversary of Drupal. And I've been interviewing, you know, a lot of people at Tag1 that have been part of the community, you know, since the earliest days. And when I spoke to Jeremy Andrews, who, for those who don't know, is the founder of Tag1, He reminded me that 20 years ago, he had this blog called Kernel Trap that was about Linux hacking. And it was popular and it would get featured on Slashdot a lot. And there was the Slashdot effect where it would inundate you with traffic and, you know, the site would go down. And you were a reader of Kernel Trap. And you reached out to him and you said, you know, Hey, you know, why don't you check out Drupal? And it's amazing. Not only did Jeremy check it out and use it, but 20 years later, Tag1 is a, you know, a huge contributor and and supporter of Drupal. So that, that outreach had, you know, an unbelievable impact. How did you first grow, you know, the, the user base of Drupal? Were were you reaching out to people like that all
1: the time? Uh, Yeah, well, I I would actually like, well, first of all, like, I'm looking forward to watch all of these uh, interviews you're doing, Michael, and I have them queued up in my sort of to watch list. And uh, I was out sick last week, so I haven't got a chance to to watch them yet, but I'm excited to to hear, re, you know, re-hear those stories. But Jeremy's story was amazing because, as you mentioned, he had a blog, Colonel Trap, and uh, I was also a small contributor to Linux and a Linux user at the time. And so I loved everything about it. And also at the time in Linux was sort of all the rage, you know, like people were talking about it all the time. And today it's still all the rage, but people don't talk about it as much anymore. It kind of disappeared a little bit in the background as it became literally infrastructure for the world. It was, people like to talk about things that are cutting edge and, and sort of, you know, disrupting the status quo and as things get accepted maybe they become a little bit less interesting to talk about but anyway so jeremy's site was crashing and jeremy may have told this story i don't know but site was crashing and i would reach out and i promised him like if you switch your site from i think it was php nuke or something that he was using another open source cms or post nuke i forgot what it was I said, if you migrate your site, I promise you, your site will never crash again. <laughs> which was obviously kind of a salesy and marketing thing to say. And I had to convince him a little bit. And I even gave him root access, if you will, to you know, drop.org, which was sort of the only or one of the few Drupal sites at the time, which is also kind of a weird thing to do. And eventually, Jeremy ported his site. And next time he was on Slashdot, obviously, <laughs> his site came down crashing. <laughs> so my promise wasn't really a good one, I'm afraid. But we collaborated on making some improvements to Drupal based on sort of, you know, profiling and instrumenting that crash. And you know, Jeremy made some contributions, um, and that's how he got involved. The next time his site was was fine. Anyway. To answer your question, like I would do that quite a bit, actually. Yeah, I was trying to promote Drupal. It's hard to get your project off the ground and to get it noticed, especially back in those days where you didn't really have GitHub, etc., etc. You know, where you can easily find open source projects, and, and and so yeah, we had a website, and you had to make people aware of your system. And so I would email people. I would try and convince websites that I admired, like kernel trap, to switch to, to Drupal. And I would try to participate in discussions online and kind of promote Drupal, etc., etc. And it's funny because I kind of did that naturally in a way. Like I didn't necessarily got training to do that. But then as I got more involved with startups later in life, it's very natural for startups to kind of, between quotes, buy their first customers. You know, making an investment to get these first customers, like giving things away for free, and that kind of sales and marketing tactics are, are kind of part of the startup hustle. <laughs> and so in many ways, I behaved like like a startup founder, I guess, trying to get Drupal of the ground too. Wow, it just came um, naturally.
2: Were there other um, stories where you remember of someone you sold Drupal
1: to? Do I remember other stories like that? There's. There was so many, I don't know if it was any kind of well-known sites or anything like Colonel Trap definitely was, you know, so somewhat famous at the time, but like I got emails like that all the time, like in 2006 or so, I would say like, I remember MTV switching to Drupal and there was no real Drupal companies at the time. There was a few like the Lullabots and such I were born and uh, very often these people would email me, you know? And, I, and they would ask me, like, do you think MTV could run on Drupal? <laughs> and I would be like, yeah, it will. <laughs> <laughs> it will never go then, down. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but then very often I would jump on the phone with them and do help them, you know, scale their sites or fix problems. And I did all of that free of charge, you know, like it was just for fun. And I remember spending a lot of my evenings on, you know, it wasn't Zoom at the time, but like sort of conference calls, really, and uh, helping them helping organizations debug and fix things that were wrong. Not necessarily with Drupal, but sometimes with their infrastructure, right? As, as you guys know very well. And so that's actually one of the reasons why I ended up co-founding Acquia. Because I felt like for Drupal to be successful, for Drupal to get really big, it needed a company that would provide the kind of enterprise-grade support, for organizations like mtv you know not necessarily the kernel traps of the world which were you know with all respect like hobby projects right (laughs) but like i felt like for drupal to get really mainstream it just needed to have that you know that commercial organization behind it that was kind of to drupal but you know red hat was to linux that was kind of the original vision
0: Colonel Trout was definitely more of a hobby project and talking to Jeremy, I was like, how much revenue did you generate? Like, he kept getting (laughs) cash out of, he's like, couldn't buy coffee. (laughs) Passion project all the way. I think one of the things that really sets Drupal apart is it's contributor base. You know, this really active and engaged, insane amount of people. It's, it's crazy. And you know, we spoke to Marin Haverbeck, the founder of CodeMirror and ProseMirror, on our last open source leadership podcast, and he talked about how he created this great setup for himself. You know, he he gets paid to work on his projects and he isn't looking to grow a community. You know, he, he described himself as a control freak who doesn't want to deal with other people's code and he's, you know, fulfilling he his ambitions. You know, he's, he's got exactly what he wants and it's, and it's amazing. So not every project or project leader wants to have a community. And and while I wouldn't say that Marin goes this far, you know, there is this concept of open source, but not open contribution on one end of the spectrum. Drupal is on the completely other end of the spectrum, you know, so you took this really different approach and I'm wondering, you know, did you consciously decide that you wanted to create a community of collaborators or did this just, you know, organically happen?
1: Yeah, it organically happened, I would say. I mean, again, when to go back into time, right? So at some point I was the only user of Drupal. <laughs> in fact, it wasn't called to Drupal. And uh, it was just a website, drop.org. And it was a little bit like a blog where I would write about things that were interesting to me, especially centered around the future of the web and emerging trends in, in technology. And it was also an experimental platform where I dabbled with emerging web technologies, like RSS was being invented. I was one of the first people to implement RSS feeds. People started blogging, and so I added a feature called public diary <laughs> or public diaries to you know, my site because it wasn't called blogging. It didn't have the name blogging back then. I also implemented a feature where other people could submit stories to my site, uh, drop.org, and then visitors could vote on those stories. And the best stories with the most votes would automatically get promoted to the main page. And so that was way before sites like Dig, and eventually even Reddit, you know? Like, so I was dabbling with a lot of these kind of ideas. And uh, anyway, it was kind of an experimental platform. And that attracted people to drop.org that were interested in the future of the web. and. They started making suggestions and like maybe you can change the algorithm to work like this or you know that kind of stuff and eventually instead of me having to implement all of these suggestions <laughs> which was fun i felt you know maybe it makes sense to open source this so that people can then download it and use it as their own experimental platform actually see the code and the algorithms and then suggest more specific recommendations. And so that's when I like, you know, I think I spent like 30 seconds (laughs) thinking of a name, like, no Drupal. Like it wasn't like, again, a big sort of like, oh, what am I going to name this thing? And I literally copied the GPL license file from my Linux kernel tree (laughs) into my website, created a zip file and uploaded uh, that zip file to uh, drop.org. I mean, that was it. Like it, like there, and maybe I expected 10 other people to download Drupal, you know, like it was literally just like, here it is, try it out if you want. If you have any suggestions for changes, let me know. But very much like the other gentleman that you mentioned, I forgot his name right now, but I was very obsessive about the code and wanted to be perfect. And so I wasn't necessarily, again, looking to build a community, but it just kind of happened. Like people started using it. People started contributing Patches uh, and suggestions, and at the time, I was just on a mailing list, or not even a mailing list. They would email me a patch. <laughs> you know, we didn't have GitHub or you know GitLab and the likes. And slowly but certainly, we started building a community, like one user at a time. You know, like I got Jeremy involved, Marco got involved. I mean, like all these people started to get involved and started using Drupal as a starting point, and then adding on top of it. And I would start collecting these things, these uh, changes, and merging them in, you know, and making releases. And literally, you know, Drupal started growing. And And people think Drupal sometimes is like an overnight success, but it's not. Like it actually went really, really slow. You know, it's like a, almost like a compounding machine where initially it feels really slow, like two users, three users. And like to give you an example, in 2005, So Drupal I released on January 15th, 2001. So let's call it the beginning of 2001, right? So in 2005, I organized the first Drupal conference and they had like, I think like 30 or 40 people showed up. So that's like four years or five years after really starting Drupal, we had 40 people show up. You know, so it's not like an explosion happened or something.
3: I think that's quite a lot. Like 30 people actually showing up physically. That's, I think, a lot of work. There are more successful, like there are really successful open source projects. And I don't think, uh, like just uh, counting the stars uh, on GitHub, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think I would show up for any of these because we're getting so used to open source right now. Mm -hmm. And I think what you did was something really special, especially at the time. And what you're saying is, I'm kind of familiar with the Linux story, right? I I wasn't, I was still like uh, learning math when uh, you did all of that. But so I got really interested in Linux and this is why I started development myself. And what you are telling is basically the same story as a Linux story. Basically some guy working on his own problem, uh, trying to fix it, making a bit more generic. And then uh, suddenly people getting involved and contributing and using a mailing list to patch stuff, which I wouldn't know how to do, but I guess at the time you were used to applying diffs using, doing it like that. Yeah. I I think Linux still uses mailing lists, right? And they just formalized it a bit. And this is crazy to me that, uh, that you can do that.
1: That's where I learned everything from it. I was on the Linux kernel mailing list for many, many years, you know, and so observed how Linux worked as a project and yes, they would email patches and you know, Drupal would use CVS actually back in the day. You know, and I think at the time, I forgot. But when I got involved again, I was more of a lurker, although I did contribute a little bit to Linux. But you know, I was a computer science. I studied computer science, and I was really passionate about low-level uh, software, and still am actually. But anyway, so I was really intrigued in all of that kind of stuff, and I just looked at like how Linux and and Linus Torvalds were doing things. And I copied that model really, that was the starting point. Like I'm gonna do things the way they're doing it because obviously they were the most successful open source project. And I even tried my open source career emails uh, back and forth with Linus asking for advice and you know that kind of stuff. So it's been very helpful in a way in terms of how to do things and, and providing some guidance
0: what guidance would you give uh, open source projects you know that are looking to replicate what you did on the community side you know you said you said you know a lot of it grew organically at the start but then it really you know flourished and took off are there things that stand out to you
1: yeah i mean i think to to make a controversial statement purposely controversial i think and to go back to an earlier topic that we discussed right so i think growing an open source project is like 80% sales and marketing. <laughs> and so I say that pr- purposely somewhat provocative, but you know, yes, you need to build great software. Everything starts with having great software and everything stops or fails with having crappy software. So I'm not, I'm not disputing um, the, the, the importance of great engineering work. But when I look at my history and, and what I've done. A lot of it is what I call sales and marketing, but it's I use it, the term loosely, right? But if you think about a project lead, you need to convince others to get involved. You know, that's a form of marketing and sales. Like you have to inspire people to get involved with your project. Once they get involved, you have to inspire them about the vision and where you think the project has to go. That's a form of sales and marketing. And so, I think a lot of open source projects get stuck, I think, and not necessarily in a bad way, because not every open source project needs to grow, you know, build a community. But I think it's not enough to just kind of throw something over the wall, if you will, or to upload something or commit something to GitHub. You know, that's not going to lead to magically making open source projects successful, although the GitHub model actually helps you a lot compared to what we had back in the day when I started Drupal, where we didn't have that kind of thing. Um, we had things like source and, but it wasn't quite the same as, as, uh, you know, as GitHub. So anyway, and I think, and even like, let's say at Acquia, it's the same thing, like as a founder, or an open project lead, it doesn't really make a big difference. I think you're convincing employees to join your company. You have to convince them of the roadmap, the vision for the company. You have to raise money from investors, which you don't have that in open source, but you still need to raise money often to sustain your open source development. So again, you have to convince potential donors or investors, whatever you want to call that, to put money in your project or your startup. Again, it's a form of sales and marketing. Um, and so, anyway, I often recommend people like learn those skills, you know, if you can, like learn to be convincing, learn to be uh, articulate about your project and the value that it provides. I think it's a good thing for many technical people to, to learn a little bit about.
0: We're gonna come back to that in, uh, part two. Oh, sorry, Fabian?
2: Yep. That sounds really good. Yeah. I, in 2006, I was active in the KDE community, like Linux desktop framework and that, and thinking back now in retrospective, a lot of uh, what one of my friends at the time did was, was especially organizing such conferences, etc. and a lot of that, as you said, was fundraising essentially mm-hmm. talking with the big companies like IBM and all of those and and trying to essentially get them to fund the conferences and and all of that so that's a really interesting perspective
1: yeah that, that's that's a good point like conferences is a, are a form of sales and marketing convincing kernel trap convincing mtv all kind of sales and marketing related things
2: i had another question regarding your community when did you first feel either the need or it organically happened, or when did it happen that you first gave out the first maintainer access, someone else committing, like giving up the control this point?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I have to actually look into the, the history of Drupal about when that happened, but it, I can tell you how it happened. Like I would constantly encourage people to get involved. And so people would email me like, hey, wouldn't be great if Drupal did this, and my answer would almost always be, I would be great. How do you feel about building it or implementing it? And if you do, I'll help you. That was kind of like my standard response. And that's how Matt Westgate, for example, got involved. Uh, we then ended up being instrumental starting Lullabot, which is like Tag1, right? Is another sort of key Drupal company. And so the same thing happened along other kind of areas. Like for example, Chicks Caroli, who I think many of us know, right? Um, He actually approached me one day and said, you know, I think we need like a security email list or something (laughs) or like a security maintainer, somebody that can help manage security issues. And I said, yeah, Let's do it. And literally on the spot, I made him the head of the Drupal security team. (laughs) And we created the Drupal security team right there. You know what I mean? So it's like taking these moments where people express an interest or an idea and then immediately converting it into ownership. And I think that's been really important for Drupal. Because, and I think it's really important in open source, because when people feel like a sense of responsibility or a sense of ownership over a part of a project, they're just going to bring, often, I'm generalizing, but they're going to bring more energy to that, you know, they're going to contribute more because, like, all of a sudden, you're the head of the security team, better do a good job, you know, (laughs) the stakes are higher when you like own it. And I think it kind of helped a lot. And so I would kind of appoint ownership of you know modules or whatever, you know, components we call it today along the way. But I don't know when that actually started started, you know. And the other big thing that I I think I did really well at the time, like all the other CMSs, they weren't really modular. I mean it's hard to believe right now. <laughs> but Drupal was sort of the first modular CMS where somebody could build a plugin or an extension or a module, as we call it. And that's game changing too, because I knew that was just better (laughs) than all of the competitors at the time. And again, that goes to the point, like you have to start with great software that's better than competitors, right? Otherwise there's no point in marketing it. But anyway, that modular approach really created an architecture for participation, because one of the things that happens is you you get all of these people that want to get involved and they contribute things that maybe you don't want. (laughs) Like literally people contributed all sorts of things. I'm like, I don't know, I don't want that. (laughs) But instead of saying no, period, I could always say no, but you can make it a module and it can go into the contributed module repository. It will be awesome. And often it was, right? And so it gave kind of this softer no, no, but, you go become your own module maintainer and it will be a great plugin for Drupal. And so again, that also created ownership with thousands of people because I think we have like what 40,000 modules or something. And so that's, that's a great thing to do for open source projects instead of being monolithic, you know, be modular and have an architecture of participation that invites others to participate and own things, whether it's, part of the core, like we do with maintainers and components, where we have owners for all of these, or if you do it in your, you know, extension or plugin or module repository.
2: That's really interesting. And in essence, you again took a startup concept, the equity concept of people owning a part of the company and providing to open source. First time I've heard about it in that context. So it was really nice to hear and very insightful. Thank you.
1: Oh, you're welcome.
0: What was it like when, when Drupal became kind of more than you, you know, when you weren't sort of the sole decision maker? You know, you, you brought in Gerhard for four or five and sort of like the beginning of the core maintainers. And, you know, you started handing over even more control, not just saying, you know, that should be a module, but like literally, you know, bringing on a team of people to help you run the core of Drupal. Was that, you know, liberating, frustrating? both
1: (laughs) it was all of those it was it was necessary because it just became too much for me to do like literally was maintaining the web the servers (laughs) where that or you know like that ran drupal.org i was writing most of the software still uh, most of drupal i was doing releases i was doing qa and I was also having you know a day job <laughs> like again, I did Drupal I, I didn't mention this, but the first seven years or something. Drupal was a hobby project. I didn't get paid it's It's what I did at night on the weekends I mean every every minute <laughs> that I had of spare time was basically going to Drupal and as Drupal grew and grew and grew and like thousands of sites were using it and hundreds of people started to contribute. I, I couldn't, I couldn't scale that anymore. And so I had to get people involved. Otherwise I would probably burn out or a project would suffer and fail. So I, I started scaling and it wasn't easy. It was hard to give up some of that control, admittedly in the early days. Now it's easy, but I had to learn how to do that. I had to learn to trust other people sort of with my baby between quotes. And I, uh, and I, and I, and I think the way it worked is I, I would I would give ownership or parts of the control to the people that I really trusted. And that trust was gained over years sometimes. You know, people that contributed for many years that have shown um, that they were strong technical contributors, but also I looked for... Sort of the soft skills too. Like I always focused on finding people that, you know, kind of were even keeled and level headed, that were good communicators, that were nice, that represented, if you will, sort of the values of Drupal. You know, like it wasn't enough to be a strong technical contributor. You know, wasn't always perfect, <laughs> you know, but ov- overall, that was really my goal is to not just look at technical capability. And and amount of contribution, but also just that like, how well did they contribute? And then also made a lot of, you know, call it bets, if you will, and up and comers too. I I always liked doing that and I still do. (laughs) I saw kind of people contributing and are so passionate and I saw them learn and grow so quickly. I would kind of try to empower them to grow even faster by giving them more responsibilities or a responsibility in the Drupal project. But I had to do it because Otherwise, yeah, I think Drupal would have suffered from, from, you know, like things would go too slow. And I, I could tell because people would get more and more frustrated with me. <laughs> like they would submit or email and I forgot a patch and I would sit there for weeks because I, I didn't get to it. And people started like sending reminders and like started like complaining. And it was just a sign for me. Like, all right, I get it. Like I need to like, we need to create more capacity to process these things.
0: I think, you know, one of the things that we see a lot with open source contributors is, you know, is burnout, you know, whether you become a victim of your own success or, you know, you're just so passionate about something, you get so involved and everybody's hitting you up for changes. And, you know, a lot of people, I don't, I don't want to say crash and burn, but need to take breaks from time to time. And, and some, you know, altogether just leave the project because they get so burnt out. You know, you've done this for 20 years. How on earth have you managed that?
1: Yeah. Well, I had like a burnout once, I would say. I don't think I've spoken about that publicly, but at the time I was finishing my PhD, which had nothing to do with Drupal. And I was a few months from getting married. And we were also trying to finish, I forgot what it was, maybe Drupal 4.7 or something, which was a major release. And it was just too much. I was too much stress. And, you know, like I was, I had anxiety and like burnout feelings. And I decided to take a break and I took a one month break and I communicated that on my blog, but I didn't say that I had a burnout or that like I was... Too, had too much stress I, I'm not sure I fully recognized those feelings either at the time but I also didn't feel comfortable being so public about it and by the way this was I'm gonna say I don't I don't even know like 15 years ago so or, you know early on let's say in Drupal so I, I definitely had that and I learned a lot about myself and I mean I, I do believe humans learn how to push their limits. And unfortunately, sometimes you have to go in the red too much to learn what your limit is. You know? And that's what happened to me. Like I I pushed myself too much. And I just like like physically I had issues (laughs) because of that. And uh, but I also know that over time my limit has kind of increased for you know rightly or wrongly. Like I feel like I'm able to cope with more and more and deal with stress better and better and also I think and this may be controversial I don't know but I also feel like maybe it is privileged statement but I think often burnout is also self-induced not saying it's always the case and again that's why maybe it's very privileged to say but I think it's often people that are so ambitious that put so much you know that put their own bar so high you know Like they do it to themselves in a way because they want to be so good at what they do. And I think learning how to manage that for yourself, I think is so important. Now I understand not everybody has the luxury where they can maybe not give two hundred percent all the time, but you know, I think burnout happens when you push yourself too too much. I mean, it's one of the reasons why it happens. And it's a reason, that's one of the scenarios that you can control. So I always had to learn how to um, do that. And I think a big problem is how we were thought and raised, I think, or how the school system works. Because you go to school, you get homework, and the expectation is you complete your homework. You do everything on your to-do list. But as you get into the real world, (laughs) whether it's work or open source, the to-do list becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And our instincts, because of our education, I believe, are to complete everything on a to-do list. And that's what actually causes often the burnout, in my opinion, versus saying, and that's what I do now, that I've learned the hard way, is to say, I'm just going to focus on the most important things on my to-do list. And it's okay if there's hundreds of other items on my to-do list. And there are, I can tell you. It's okay if those things don't get done. I don't care. And like learning not to care about those things, it's hard. And learning how to delegate them, obviously too. I was never thought that. And unfortunately, I think too many people have to learn that the hard way. It's like like you're so disciplined about trying to get everything done on your to-do list that it actually breaks you. You know, And then you have to make this mental switch, like, you know what, I'm not going to do everything on my to-do list. I'm only going to do what's most important and that I can control in the available time that I have. And it's really, I got anxiety of not doing everything on my to-do list, you know?
2: Yeah. Definitely. I think another point you pointed to that earlier of a burnout is, is wrong expectations, essentially you see, for example, one open source project being completely going off the ground, like a rocket, and you expect every project and your own also to need to behave like that. And so you think uh, you put like this wrong expectations, and as you've already alluded to earlier, the solution for that is to have a compounding mindset. To know that everything is compounding and things start to grow really, really slowly at the start, etc., and that therefore it's okay to not get everything finished and 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 have every release perfect or whatever like that, because it will take years anyway. So there's that's right. there's a time factor on your side.
1: I think that's well said. I agree with that. Yeah, and it's something we have to learn for ourselves, right? And I think everybody can adopt that mindset.
0: I really appreciate you, you know, candidly sharing that. I think a lot of people will, will learn from that. And I think your capacity has grown in, insanely, you know, like most people couldn't run a, a project the size of Drupal. Most people couldn't grow a startup to a billion dollar enterprise. And I can't think of many people that could do both at the same time. I mean, you know. Yeah.
1: Uh, it's, so for the longest time, Michael, I, I was actually <clears throat> focused on, at this notion in my head like how do i double my capacity every six months and that was like a goal for myself like a, it's like a way of approaching what i was doing like how do i double my capacity every six months you know because and that could by be by delegating or by you know raising money and hire people like i, I really like again maybe it goes back to the compounding notion but like kind of have to keep growing and when you're you know when you're small you're one person you know, it's very different to double your capacity <laughs> than when you're large you know it becomes harder and, and different but I, I think maybe taking that lens on your life or on if you if you're interested in that notion like how do you double your own capacity what would you do it's a good question to ask and then create an action plan for and try and execute it i'm not saying it's easy but it's um, so useful, so useful thought process, at least.
0: I think everybody could use more time and, and you know, my to-do list never ends. We really, really appreciate, you know, you joining us, Trees. To our listeners, make sure you stick around and check out part two of this conversation, where we're going to talk about financially supporting your open source development work. Uh, the links that we mentioned today will be posted in the show notes. Uh, if you like this talk, please remember to upvote, subscribe, and share it with your friends. Be sure to check out past episodes of our tag one team talks at tag one.com slash And as always, we would love your input and feedback on this show and topic suggestions for the future. You can reach us at tagteamtalks at tag one.com. Again, Dries, a huge thank you, Kevin, Fabian, really appreciate you joining us. We'll see you soon.